You know, uh, when we started this series in John, I asked you uh, to go back on that first week with us to John chapter 20. Would you turn there with me? John chapter 20. I know we're not going to be there tonight, but I just want to read those two verses that we recognized that first Wednesday night. And we've mentioned a couple of times, I believe, since, but we want to just, again, remind ourselves, John had a purpose in the way he wrote his gospel differently than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Because while they were telling us the, the narrative history, the truths, the events, the teachings, all those things, John was really taking what he saw and what he was by the Holy Spirit's leadership led to pen in order that, I think, prompted by the Holy Spirit to persuade us, to lay out the case for our belief in Him. John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, right there at the end of that chapter, it says, Therefore many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. And I want to read that tonight because we are after chapter 1 is kind of a prologue to the entire gospel uh, letter, the, um, the, the gospel uh, book of John. But as we look at tonight, we enter into the real meat of the, of the gospel, if you will. The book has now been presented, it's been set up, it's been framed. <laughs> now we're going to learn what he did to glorify the Father, how His glory was seen and experienced by those that were closest to Him. John chapter 2, if you again look with me as we continue our study in this beloved gospel. John chapter 2, verse 1. On the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there, and Jesus and His disciples were invited to the wedding. When the, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to Him, They have no wine. I've had my mom say things like that. We're going to talk about how he responded and how she responded to his response uh, as we walk through. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. Now, there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification, containing 20 or 30 gallons each. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. So they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the head waiter or the steward. Uh, so they took it to him. When the head waiter tasted the water which, was, which had become wine and did not know where it came from for the servants who had drawn the water knew, the head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, Every man serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, he then serves the poorer wine. But you have kept the good wine or preserved the good wine until now. This beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested His glory. And His disciples believed in Him. We're going to stop there. We begin tonight's 
walk through the Scripture with this first aspect in verses 1 through 4, we find that this was really a time of new beginnings. The setting is a time of new beginning. It's a wedding. (laughs) 32 years ago, this past July 21st, 32 years ago, I was standing right here. And that was the summer after our congregation, this congregation, had moved from downtown campus to the Appling Road campus. There were only two other weddings that had taken place in the sanctuary. Moments from the moment I was standing here, and oh, by the way, the carpet was different back then, wasn't it? Moments before that fateful covenant celebration, Wendy and I had decided that because of the nature of the event and the number of people that had been invited, some of you may know that I married into a Bellevue family. I I didn't grow up here. My wife did. But I am, uh, I told somebody Monday morning, the lady started laughing. (laughs) I married Phil Weatherwax's first daughter. And the lady started laughing this past Monday morning from my hospital bed. I mean, I thought that was good that she's laughing, but I didn't know exactly what she's laughing about. But then I thought about it, and I know the family I married into. So uh, I'm just, just, but on that day, she walked in because we were going to do pictures beforehand. Weren't superstitious about anything like that. So we took pictures. I guess we didn't need to be. We've been at it 32 plus years now. I think I'm, like Dr. Rogers say, if she ever leaves me, I'm going with her. Uh, but uh, she walked down that, and I saw her for the first time. It was, it was such a wonderful day. It was a day of new beginnings. I can imagine what was going on. Because you see, we had really extended. I had asked Wendy to marry me a year and a month before it actually happened. I don't recommend that ever again. As a pastor, I've said, some people say, well, we're going to get married. No, you're not. No, don't do that to yourselves. You know, six, nine months. Oh, but we got a lot of preparation. You get them done then. Do not wait as long as we did. Uh, it's just hard. But we, had, but we had done all the planning. My mother-in-law and wife and her sister and everybody that they could tag team with had planned. It was a big event. I want to tell you that because I can imagine what would have been happening in the mind of that family who in the midst of what we thought it was a big day, and it was just a Saturday here. The Jewish tradition was that the celebration would go on for approximately a week up until the time that when all was in preparation, the bridegroom would go at an unannounced time to, the bride, to his bride's house and announce it's time. <laughs> Ladies, wouldn't that be great? <laughs> just be ready. <laughs> I'll come sometime soon. There's a lot of biblical narrative to that, but analogy to that, but it's it's a hard thing. But to imagine that he had finally gotten to the day, he had gone and gotten his bride-to-be, and they were about to, to have the official ceremony, and Mary notices. We don't know why Mary was involved or why she had knowledge of what was happening behind the scenes. 
But I can imagine what Debbie Campbell and the hostess committee here at Bellevue would do if you told them, we cannot find the punch. Okay? It would be all hands on deck without anybody noticing that everybody's rushing around behind the scenes to take care of it. But Mary was there. She noticed what had happened. Now, it's a new beginning because there's a couple about to start a life together, but it's also a new beginning because up until this point, Jesus had, as we see in the first chapter, had begun His ministry, but it was still very much on a very small scale as far as public awareness. And all we know about Mary and Jesus' connection to one another, their relationship, is really two things. We knew because of Matthew as well as Luke's account about his birth narrative. Remember, she hid all these things in her heart. The second time is when he was about 12 years old, and they went to the temple for the feast, and when they left, I I still scratch my head. A couple of days later, they noticed he wasn't around. Well, by that time... You know, we have probably four brothers, at least two sisters. He's the oldest of seven children. Maybe that was the reason. We had too many other folks that we were taking care of to notice. We just assumed he was with the other relatives. That was common as well. But they began to check and say, hey, have y'all seen Jesus? And nobody had seen him. And they finally discovered he wasn't with them as they were leaving Jerusalem in the, in the back horizon. She comes to him at this point in the start of his ministry and she looks at him and she says, they have no wine. Now, the the response from our 20th and 21st century ears is to listen to Jesus' response and say, whoa, that's kind of out of out of character. He looked at his mother when she presented an issue and said, Woman, what has this to do with us? My time has not come. My hour has not come. First of all, we need to remind ourselves of a couple of things. We can't hear and know what it means now unless we knew what it meant then. Or we know what it meant then. The word woman in that context, in that time, was not a derogatory word. It wasn't a slap in his mother's face, so to speak. Second, John never uses the word Mary, the term Mary, in all of it. And and in fact, he talks about his mother or the Lord's mother in that context, but he he never names her by her given name. But when he's on the cross... He says, woman, again, woman, behold thy son. Pointing to John. Now you have at that moment, at the end of his life, at the end of his earthly ministry, so to speak, you see what has to give reference and and insight into what he had said at the first of his ministry. Here you have Jesus on the cross dying for the sins of the world, including the sins of His own mother, who was not without sin. 
I don't know how you grew up or what you've taught, been taught in the past, but Mary, first of all, she did not remain a virgin. And she was not the, the, excuse me, the mother of our Lord because she was sinless. She was that by divine appointment. And so you see Him on the cross suffering an incredible, horrendous death, and He looks down and His heart for His mother is saying, I'm the oldest child. I'm no longer going to even be able to influence her day-to-day -day care. And therefore, because my own brethren at that moment had not yet come to know me as Lord, I'm going to hand off the care of my mother to John, and he's going to record it. So at that moment, I can't imagine that Jesus was being unkind or insensitive or smart aleck in the way he addressed his mother, and therefore I can't say that that term would be in any way insulting at the first of his ministry. So we have to understand the context. The, the ceremony was going on, but there's a crisis. Because you see, we think, well, it's a bad thing to run out of supplies at a big wedding, especially one that's supposed to last a week. And, and you certainly don't want to be embarrassed by that. There's social implications of that. But do you know there's also civil penalties in that day for running out of supplies at a wedding that you've invited people to? So this is, this is more than just a small thing. But Jesus turns to her and He says still, though He's not being insulting, He does say, you need to, you need to hear me, Mary, woman, with, with all due respect. And He was giving, you know, sometimes when you hear, with all due respect, you know the next thing is not going to be respectful. <laughs> they're, they're not, they're not going to respect you in whatever they say. But He really was trying to be respectful. And he says, I want you to ask, what does this have to do with us? And the idea is not, what's, it's not our problem. It's not, it's not, you, we're not hosting it. It's certainly not my wedding. Why would, why would well, you know? It's not that. He's asking her, dear mother, woman, what do you understand about this moment? Because I've started the ministry. He, she would have known that he had begun to move away. He'd already been down, baptized by John. He's now made the journey back up to north of Nazareth where he would have been uh, raised about nine miles. Cana's about nine miles north of Nazareth or the location, these two locations biblically. He's been invited, whether it's by connection through Mary or connection through Nathaniel who was from the same area, wherever they had an invitation and they had arrived, and he's saying, listen, I just want you to understand. Remember what? <laughs> that, that really significant trip to Jerusalem we took a while back, 20 years ago? Remember what I said when you found me? Did you not know I had to be about my father's business? I don't know about you, but I don't have any doubt that Mary and surrogate father Joseph both understood which father he was talking about. And now he's come back and he's saying, woman, do you understand this moment? Things are changing. And I really believe she got it. I'm just so, I'm just so excited to tell you this. I really believe she understood what he was saying. Not, not being disrespectful. She wasn't, now wait a minute, how are you talking to me, boy? 
But wait a minute, son, I... Yeah, I get it. You see, there was a consideration of his mother. She, he needed to let her know things have changed. I've been attentive to you and our family. We have no, in the public ministry of Jesus Christ, we have no reference to Joseph. Most scholars will tell you that everything leads us to believe that he had passed away by the point of the public ministry start. So as the firstborn son, Jesus would have been spending those intermittent years between the death of Joseph and his public ministry onset as the caregiver, the leader of the family. And now he's saying that that's going to change. What, what do you understand this has to do with us? Because things are changing. This is a watershed moment for our relationship. My hour, and the word hour has repercussions as we walk through the rest of John, because many times, you know, he, he, was, he was sought after to be killed by the religious leadership and, and the, the establishment of his day. And yet, time and again, he would slip away because why? It was not yet his hour. But when his hour came, if I be lifted up, all men shall be drawn to me. When that hour came, everyone knew it. So what she was thinking, perhaps, when she walked up to him was, maybe this is the hour. Maybe this is when everybody's going to know who my son is, because I've been pondering this in my heart since the day he was born. And he says, the, there is a change. There is a crisis moment that we, we're going to look at here, but let me just tell you this. That change is not the one you think yet. That hour has not yet come. So not only do we see it's a time for new beginnings, but there is a truth for all believers here. There is a truth for all believers. Look with me in verse 5. His mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Before there was Nike, there was Mary. Just do it. <laughs> Some of you still will get that. I know it's sketchers for most of us, but okay. There's a joke behind that too. But anyway, now there were six stone water pots, not earthen pots, but stone water pots because earthen were considered to be contaminatable, if that's a good word. They would hold the, the, the um, things that would be considered unclean ceremonially. And so stone pots were actual carved pots, different sizes, but these were 20 to 30 gallons apiece, six of them, probably different sizes or shapes depending on the rock that was used to carve them out. But he says here again, verse 6, Now there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification. Before they would uh, eat, they would, uh, again, they're talking about a week-long celebration, they would wash their hands in these purification pots or with the water from these purification pots. The scripture here says, containing, again, 20 or 30 gallons each, Jesus said to them, Fill the water pots with water. So they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, a, a second thing, draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. 
So they took it to him. I want to stop there for a moment. There are real consequences to what we've just set up in this this idea that there's new beginnings, both for the couple and for the Christ and for his family and for those that are now following. This is a turning point. This is a first sign, a first miraculous sign pointing to the glory of who Jesus Christ is. But the truth is, first of all, there's, there's this truth coming from a human perspective about what's happening. From Mary, look, look, look at her persuasion. His mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. I want to I just encourage you. In that day and age, and for centuries that followed, and many millennia before, as long as human history, really, women had been subordinated. And not, not, not disdaining the fact that we still have gender bias and, and we have things that happen on, on some... But I think, if you'll, if you'll prayerfully listen, no other religion has done more for the rights and role of women than Christianity. We have esteemed the role of women, not degraded. Women are not considered less pro- more property-like than a common slave in Christianity. In fact, it's not that we even consider other human beings property. We believe, yes, people say, well, you know, the Bible was used to to continue the the horrendous practice of slavery. No, the Bible was misused and misquoted. So we we need to establish that. But, But Women especially, and and all peoples, no matter who they were, if you read the Scriptures as they were written, esteem the life and the viability and and the honor and the esteem that God gives to every human being. Today I started my day talking with an older gentleman that has a grown son who is completely dependent on others because of his physical, mental, and emotional limitations. 38 years old, this son is. I was talking to him because he's just lost his wife of 49 years. He has a heart for his son, but he just says, I, I, I can't do what I want to do. I can't, I can't be there. We, we could not for a long time do but he's getting such good care and we've made, well, that's doing for him. Making sure that he is being taken care of by those that can and know how, that's great. You say, Mike, what's that have to do with what we're talking about? People are precious in the sight of the Lord. And Mary was not degraded by the Lord, by his words, or by the situation that we're walking into tonight. Remember what he said? What has this to do with us? Things are changing, Mom. My hour has not yet come. And instead of getting really upset with her seeming rebuffing by her son, she uses her feminine, motherly, female influence 
and looks at the servants of the, of the celebration and says, without a missing a beat, whatever he says, do it. I think sometimes we think of less of ourselves, maybe because of society, maybe because of the way we were raised, maybe because of bad relationships in our home of origin, maybe because we've been really beat up by the world since we were grown. For whatever reasons, we often think less of ourselves, and especially evangelistically. Spiritually, we often assume that nobody really wants to hear what we have to say because we're just us. In that day, it would have been, we're just, I'm, just, I'm just a woman. Nobody pays attention to women in first century Palestine. Nobody would listen to what I had to say, but she knew the servants had been gathered there around this situation. They knew what was going on. They knew what was happening with the, with the supply uh, uh, problem. <laughs> they had heard what had happened, and they knew... She could have reacted any way she wanted. She could have responded any way she wanted. And her first response was to use her influence to point others and say, say this, whatever he says. You see, I think not only your influence, <laughs> but I think her, <laughs> she got it. When he said, what does this have to do with us? She realized, my son is coming into what the Lord has created him and sent him to do. He's taking on the mantle that from eternity past has been his in waiting. He's the Lord of lords and King of kings. So let me just tell everybody that will listen, whatever he says, do it. Amen? I mean, that, that's good for today. I mean, whatever the Lord says, do it. It's not about ponder it, mull over it, form a committee. <laughs> first, first time I was serving in a church uh, as a summer worker, they called me an activities director. I didn't know what that was. Just finally read the job audit, and it said, whatever else the pastor wants you to do. That's, that's what an activities director is. Um, but I remember that pastor telling me, just joking one day, he had to go to a committee meeting, and, and uh, I was spending a lot of time not only with him and kind of me being mentored by him, but also just being a part of his family. They had uh, two, uh, a boy and a girl that were maybe five or six years younger than me. And so they just kind of took me into their home that summer. And we were joking one night, and he said, you know what a committee is, Mike? As he was headed out the door, I said, no, sir. What's a committee? I mean, I knew what a committee was, but I was wondering what he was going to tell me. He said, a committee is what a, Baptist commi a, a group of Baptists do with an idea of a horse. So, you know, that's when you, get, when you take a horse, an idea of a horse, and you give it to committee, you get a camel. Uh, and uh, I was like, okay, I told that badly, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. But the reality is, I've been in some committees that came out with more camels than horses. And, uh, and uh, so, no, it doesn't mean that we form a committee and we, we ponder it or we, we file it in you know, for future research. Whatever he says, do it. 
The second thing, not, or the third thing, not only did, did she use her influence, and not only did she identify, but she, she also just inspired them. She inspired them. Do it. Whatever he says, that's, that's, that's his, his role is, is as broad as, as the world. Nothing is beyond his ability to speak into. So whatever he says, he is worthy to be listened to. And by the way, your, your encouragement, my, my desire for you, my encouragement, my persuasion is summed up in this. Do it. Don't, don't argue it. Don't, don't mitigate it. Don't water it down. Just do it. I'm telling you what, folks. We are in a world that needs Christians just to do it. I mean, please hear me. We live in a world upside down and calling itself right side up. And yet the Word of God says, Woe to them that call evil good and good evil. And that's what we're living in. And a lot of it has to go back. I don't think it's a failure of politics. I don't think it's a failure of education. I don't think it's a, a failure of the executive branch or, or state, federal, or local level. I think the failure is with us. You say, now wait a minute. You blaming me for all this? You talking to me? Yes. I'm talking to us. Why? Because if the Christian community, if God-fearing, Christ-redeemed, Bible-enthralled believers would just do it, you know what we'd be doing? We'd be winning our neighbors and our friends and our colleagues to Jesus Christ. And you know what that would happen? In, what would happen in their lives? The Holy Spirit, who had worked in us to bring us to them and to tell them about the Lord Jesus, would then change their lives. And people who were wrong-minded would get right-minded. And who people who were upside down would get right-side up. And what was being called good would be called evil. And what's being called evil would be called good. We'd turn the world around if we just do it. The truth comes, one, from her persuasion. But also, look with me in this passage. Because after chapter 2 and verse 5, you almost see her fade into the background until the cross. But look what she must surely have overheard her son say. Verse 6. Now there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purifications containing 20 or 30 gallons each. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. I'm a servant. I've been listening to this whole back and forth between Mary and her son. And she told me when she was just walking away from the conversation and the, the little gathering here, she said, whatever he says, do it. I understand that. But I'm looking at my fellow servant on either side. I'm saying, fill the water pots with water. She told him they're out of wine. They, they don't need water. For, they're, all, they're all been through the water purification. They're all waiting for the rest of the celebration to continue. We're about to be on call for bringing out the, the, the wine. 
and the food and all that. Why is he worried about purification? That's not going to happen until the next meal. We've got to worry about this one. You see, a lot of times what God tells us to do doesn't seem exactly the answer we were looking for, and that's why we stop and stumble. That's why we sit and eventually sour. Because instead of just doing it, we want to think it through. We want to say, well, you know, he's, God is kind of like, instead of my commander, he's, he's more of a consultant. And that's where we fail. That's where our faith falters. And that's where God could do it without us, but he's wanting to do it through us. And we stumble at that. The scripture here says, fill the water pots with water. Well, eventually they composed themselves, apparently, and, and pretty quickly, according to the text, and they filled the water pots, how? To the brim. Completely. The idea, scholars tell us, it's, it's not just that they, you know how you turn on the faucet and you're trying to fill up a pot, and you don't want to overfill it, so you're watching, watching, you slow it down to almost a trickle when it gets close to the top, because you don't want to spill any, moving it from the sink over to the stove. No, 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 no. The idea is that they filled the pots to such a degree that they were actually overflowing a bit, just to show they're full. You say, why is that important? Hold on to your hats. The point was they did what they were told. And then he looked at, they looked at him and said, hey, you see, they're all, you can see the water dripping out the sides. They're full. And he says, now draw out and take it to the head, head waiter or the steward. The word, <clears throat> how many of you are, are familiar with boating? Anybody? Navy, service, anybody like that? Do you know what the term bilge water is? Bilge water is everything that gets down in the bottom of the boat fluid-wise. It's not just the gas and the oil that comes from, with, along with an engine, but anything and everything that just gets... Wash down there. It is nasty stuff. The word draw out has a similar meaning to bailing out Bill's water. <laughs> it's really good here, folks. He's told him to fill it up, and now he's saying, now bail out. What you thought was useless, even because of purification rites had already been performed, it might have even begun to get a little tainted, Dirty, dangerous. But you told us to draw it out, and you know we're taking it to the headwaiter, means we're drawing it out with a cup. But take it there. Now, listen, there is never a part of this sign passage that tells us that there was wine created before they drew out. They drew out, and when they got to the head waiter, they didn't taste it. No, no sign that he, we can't argue out of, out of uh, silence that they tasted it. never says that they tasted it. But they took what they drew out, whatever it was, to the head waiter for him to taste. Okay? Why is that important? Because you and I need to hear this. God's demand, God's command, was for them to obey. And they did. But they didn't just obey half-hearted. They filled it to the brim. 
And then when he told them, now the second step I wanted you to take in obedience and faith is to take out what you just filled up in a cup to the head waiter. And by faith, <laughs> I want you to hand it to him. Now, can you imagine, wait a minute, you just told us to put water in those pots. Now you want us to take a cup of water and take it to the head waiter who's expecting wine. And if we're not giving him wine, our faith, our following after what you said is going to be publicly displayed. What if you don't come through? What if what we're hoping is happening or you could help us with, you're not really helping us, you're just going to show us to be clowns. You see, friends, a lot of times that's also why. We, we want to debate God or we want to avoid any embarrassment in the pursuit of God. We want everybody to like what we're doing, to agree with what we're doing, to affirm what we're doing, even though it is a faith moment. It may be audacious faith, but what we're wanting is an easy faith walk, one that everybody can approve of. And friends, not everybody's going to be approving of everything we do. But if you'll walk by faith and do what he says, when he says it, how he says it, to the full ability of your, your own person, you just respond, God will take and use your willing faithfulness to accomplish his glory. When they walked up, look with me. They hand the cup to the head waiter, the steward of the ceremony, the master of ceremonies, if you will. And he says, when the head waiter tasted the water, <laughs> that's all they knew it as, which had become wine and did not know where it came from, he had no clue. He was up front with the party. They were the servants and the mother and the disciples who had heard this interchange between Mary and, his, and her son, and now Jesus the Lord and the servants. So that small group of people in the back corner, so to speak, had taken care of the issue up to this point, the head waiter just thought, wow. Look with me. The head waiter called the bridegroom. He said, come here, son. Because the bridegroom was responsible for that event and his family. Again, under penalty socially and civilly, not to provide would be a horrible thing. He brings him over to himself. He says, listen, the habit, the norm, the custom is that you give the best wine, the good wine at the front end, and you, you let everybody drink freely. <laughs> Get a little drunk is what it means. Some of them a lot drunk. And then you bring out the lesser wine, the cheaper stuff, so that they really don't know at that point. But let me tell you, because I'm not in the midst of this, this head waiter saying, I, I just want to tell you, I'm watching everything happen and make sure everything goes according. I'm not participating in that drinking. But I just tasted to make sure, kind of like a, a cupbearer to the king. I've, I'm, I'm tasting things to make sure they're right. So I'm not, I'm not drinking often enough to be inebriated. But I just want to tell you, I just tasted this wine. And it is by far the best you've offered. And in doing so, we're not, you know, 
We're not going to go deep into, you know, was that a customary thing? Was, you know, was that a quote from somebody else that this head waiter is using? We don't, all kinds of scholarship on debates that. But here's what it means for you and me. The scripture here says, he called the bridegroom and said, every man serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then he serves the poor wine. But you have set, you have kept, you've reserved, you've held back until this moment the good wine until now. That word good, kalos, is the same word in the Septuagint, that is the Greek form of the Old Testament, the same word that God looked out on the creation after six days and said, it is good. It is perfectly, completely right. It manifests the qualities by which, for which it was created to, to represent. It is a stereotypical it is a it is a quintessential <laughs> example of what wine ought to taste like okay that's pretty high praise in the midst of this party and then it says not only do we see the truth that is the truth of her persuasion and and his direction, but then last, the, the scripture, the third quote, I know there's folks that want to fill in the blank, so here it is. It is also a te the testimony of his blessings. When God meets our needs in the midst of our lack, he doesn't do it half-hearted, he does it abundantly, perfectly, completely. It is exactly, quintessentially what it should be. Even beyond what we thought it should be, God gives us His blessings. It is a testimony to His blessing. His presence in Cana and His goodness at Cana are perfectly dis distilled, if you will. Not That distillation wasn't used back then, but, and it certainly isn't a fermenting. But Christ's goodness and His presence are perfectly displayed in that moment. The glory of the Father in the Son is seen just in a moment, in a moment, in a, in a partial setting. And in doing that, He glorified Himself. Not to the world. It wasn't up front. He didn't do it in front of the whole crowd. He did it in front of a few. Jesus was in the habit of telling people, don't tell anybody. He wasn't grandstanding, but he was doing what he needed to do at the moment he needed to do it in the way he needed to do it to glorify the Father and to glorify his role as the Savior. But look with me at what it says as well in verse 11, last phrase, and his disciples believed in him. Not believed like, oh yeah, that's pretty neat. Jesus, you know, Sam, Jesus can do that. Wow. Not that kind of, I acknowledge the truthfulness of this event. I witness this. That's, it is amazing. I'm, I'm giving testimony. That is exactly what happened. Water became wine. It's belief that transforms our behavior. That's what the word believed means. You see, a lot of people want to give lip service to Jesus. Yeah, I believe Jesus. Well, what do you believe? Well, I, I believe, you know, what the Bible says. Well, what is that? <laughs> now they're getting tough on you. Um, 
Well, you know, he was, uh, he's Mary's boy, uh, born in um, Bethlehem. Yeah, I believe that. Oh, great. What else? Um, well, he's a good teacher. Great, great. He was that. What else? Um, oh, yeah, he died on the cross. Yeah, he did that. Um, and Easter? Yeah, I, be- I believe he rose from the dead. Really? Great, he did that. That's true. How would you say all that changes your life? It changes my life. Yeah, I mean, what do you differ- do differently than your neighbor that doesn't believe any of that? Hmm. Hmm. Um, can I get back to you on that? Exactly. You see, we are called not to believe the, simply the facts about the person and work of Jesus Christ, but to believe it in such a way that it changes the way we live our lives. Now, what is this passage? What is this sign? What is this first pointer to His glory and His purpose here on earth really tell us? Well, let's back up just a moment and I'll go quickly through this. First of all, the testimony of, this, of His blessings is not only seen in the, the, the objective opinion of a, a steward who didn't know anything that was happening. He just said, this is, this is a perfect example of what wine should be. God did it perfectly. But also, we see it in the fact that as we look back over this passage, when he was told by his mother they're out of wine, that was a crisis for that family, whether they knew it or not. God, can I remind you, God knows your individual and my individual needs, but He always responds with eternity in mind. Sometimes the way God answers my prayers is not the way I thought He should. But He sure does do a good job at answering them. Sometimes it takes me a long time to realize it was a good job. Sometimes I don't recognize the greatness of His answer in that moment because it was different than what I wanted or what I anticipated or what I saw as the perfect example of His answering. But God always, again, responds with eternity in mind. Second, This passage tells us that whatever he says, we are to do it with with complete obedience to the brim. Third, while he doesn't need us to show his miraculous power, to do his ministry, he chooses to work through faithful men and women. When we simply fill up the pots and dip the cup and take it to the waiter. However that works out in our life, whatever specifics that is in our life, when we just do what He says, God works through us and our faith. He desires to do so. Fourth, again, as it says in verse 11, this sign, this pointing illustration of His glory And His goodness is what He always does. 
Every time God point, gives us a sign, and there, you know, that's the funny thing. The synoptic gospels always use the word um, dunamis or powerful testimony or, or wonders. It's translated most of the time to, to describe his miraculous work. John uses more and more uh, frequently, most frequently, the word signs. And then in the Acts, we see the you know, signs and wonders. And we now, you know, people have grabbed onto that term uh, wrongly. But wonders, I've always, you know, displays of his miraculous power, those are the things that just stop us and go, whoa, I'm walking through life, down the path of life, and I didn't, I didn't see that coming. And you stop for a moment and say, now, what happened there? And God uses that stopping of your life in a wonderful, miraculous answer to prayer or, or just an intervention of whatever type He chooses to make you consider afresh and anew who He is and what He's called you to do. Signs are those things that we see God do. And again, they may be powerful, miraculous, wondrous, but they clearly point to a deeper truth. And that's what this is, this first sign. It wasn't about wine. It wasn't about weddings. It wasn't about the woman. It was about us seeing the wonder of who He is. He's God of very God. And if He wants to change the molecular structure of water to make it wine, He can do it. Because He is Lord. When she stepped aside, Mary knew. I, I, with, all the, with all that I am, I believe, she, she didn't see it as an insult. She saw that conversation as a pivotal moment in their life together as mother and son. I'm going to have to release him into God's call. He's no longer my little boy or the man that I've depended on since his dad died. He's Messiah. And he has to be Messiah, not just for me, but for the entire world for the ones that I knew He had been sent to save. I was told from the beginning. Now, Dr. Gray Allison used to call things that he added at the end of a lesson lanyards. That's a, apparently a Cajun term for a little extra at no extra cost. I'm quoting him, not making this up. I think he's a good person to quote. A lot of people will say, Preacher? You Baptist? I am. You always been a Baptist? What does that matter? Well, you know, Baptists, they don't believe in drinking. I'm not sure I'd say it that way. Well, how would you say it? Well, I know people drink. <laughs> I believe they do. I'm not fooled. I even know there's Baptists that drink. Really? Yeah. Well, I'm agreeing with them then. With who? The ones that drink. Oh. Why so? Well, after all, Jesus turned water into wine. God told me that right before I came to Mid-America, the first time. You say, how many times have you been? Twice, and they told me to go away after that. <laughs> Um, but right before I came to seminary, Wendy was finishing up her last year of college and I was pastoring and working a secular job at the same time. And <laughs> I ran into, on a visit one, late one afternoon, ran into a guy that was telling me this very thing. I'd kind of been 
prepping for it because of some situations that I'd already been facing I wanted to really nail down. And so he said, after all, Jesus turned water into wine. I said, you seem to take what Jesus does pretty seriously. Yes, sir. Okay. Well, you know, that's there in John chapter 2. Yeah, I, I remember. Well, have you read Luke chapter 22, verse 18? Why don't y'all turn over there? Luke chapter 22. He says in verse 18, he's establishing the Lord's Supper in this pericope, this passage of Scripture. Verse 22, he's of... Well, you can't turn that many pages. Still be in the same chapter. Luke 18, verse 22 says, When Jesus heard this, he said, Well, that's not it. Well, praise the Lord. 22, 18. <laughs> See? You get this late on a Wednesday. Luke 22, 18. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now until the kingdom of God comes. I will not drink of it. Now, whatever you call the fruit of the vine, I call it grape juice. Because the word oinos in John, in John chapter 2, every time wine, the word wine is used, it's the word oinos. It's a very generic term. It can mean any kind. I'm not saying it doesn't mean fermented or toxicate, intoxicating wine. I'm saying it doesn't have to. And most of the time, because of the heat of the region and grape harvest was about 100 degrees, would, be, would have been about 100 degrees typically, it's, it's not good for fermenting. And because of the heat, it's very sweet. The sugar content goes up, which also messes with winemaking. You say, how do you know? Because I do the research, not, because, not, <laughs> not, not experiential research, but research, book reading. <laughs> I haven't got a bunch of bottles in the back end of my, you know, garage uh, somewhere. But the but the point is that the 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 conditions for making wine like you and I would see in the stores today in the Holy Land in the first century were very difficult. So what most of the time happened instead of just uh, allowing that process or trying to make that process work, they would actually take the juice of the the, the juice of the vine and they would boil it and make a thick syrup that they would then put in containers, airtight containers that would actually remain good for years. And then when they opened it up, they would have this uh, fruit of the vine that they would mix with water. Most even wine that was wine of any kind was typically in that time dealt uh, with by a ratio of one part wine with three parts water before it was drank. So we're talking about a very mild alcohol content. I'm not saying that's always the case and universally needs to be understood, but a, a lot of what we see wine drinking was not the kind of wine that you would buy in, at, at Kroger's on your way through the store today. I hope you wouldn't do that, but it's possible, right? It's possible to do that in God Bless America. Uh, anyway, um, all that said... Don't take the passage in John chapter 2 as a blanket approval of wine uh, or beverage alcohol. Not only because Jesus is a teetotaler right now. Do you understand that? I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of 
God is come. So he's not drinking anything right now. But guess what? There's more. There is that passage that you've heard us quote, us being preachers and teachers for a long time. In Ephesians chapter 5, where it says, verse 18 there, I know I'm keeping you, but you need to hear this because I don't want anybody going to Brother Stephen saying, hey, Mike was talking about drinking wine all time for, you know, Wednesday night. Do what? Uh, we would have a meeting first thing tomorrow morning, right after men's breakfast. Yeah, might even get a committee on it. <laughs> Verse 18, it says, and do not get drunk. That's the same word that is used in John chapter 2 for drunk, having drunk freely. It is getting drunk, getting intoxicated. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation or debauchery. That is, it's a wastefulness, a, a, a total void of value. But be filled. Did you see that? Be filled with the Spirit. While it is a different word than Jesus used to command the servants, fill the uh, water pots with water. It has the same meaning. If I tell you, if I say, Robert, would you go shut the door? Or if I said, Robert, would you go close the door? Do you think I mean the same thing? Yes. Both words mean the same thing. Just because they're different words doesn't mean that the idea is different. If I am filled to the point that I am filled with the Holy Spirit to the brim of my being, to the point that He is overflowing out of my life, what room do I have for any other Spirit. Let me ask you that again. If I am following the command to be filled with the Spirit of God, what room for any other spirit would my life have available? None. So even though you can tell me there's no passage in the Scripture that says, thou shalt not ever drink alcohol, you're right. But if I'm following what it does say, then I have by that fact eliminated the opportunity for my life as a born-again, Christ-honoring, Spirit-filled Christian to partake in alcohol. Let's pray. Father, thank you that just like you did with the servants, you've done with your servants tonight. You've made it clear, you've made it plain. Thank you for your word. As we close out, I'm, I'm just grateful that you desire to manifest your glory through the obedience of your children. And that in doing so, you strengthen and encourage our faith, our belief that changes our behavior in the one who saved us, who continues to sanctify and cleanse us, and who will ultimately be whom, with whom we will be glorified. For it's in that precious name, the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.